Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact, in association with The Telegraph and NatWest. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today to discuss round three of the NatWest Six Nations are the former Scotland and Lions coach Ian McGeekin, former Wales prop Adam Jones and former Ireland flanker Stephen Ferris. Plus World Cup winning coach Gary Street will take us through the Women's Six Nations and Nigel Owens is back to discuss the wonderful world of rugby's laws. But first, I'm joined here in the studio by the former England and Lions fly half, Rob Andrew. Hello, Rob. Ryan, hi. Interesting weekend, eh? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I had to spend it with Gavin Hastings yeah. and, and then most of match day with, with Doddy Weir in, in the hospitality suite, both oh, before and after. Well, we've both been there before in 1990 when uh, it came a couple. Look, we'll discuss England now because we've got Sir Ian McGeekin coming on and we'll focus specifically on Scotland uh, and their tremendous performance, let's face it, uh, when he comes and joins us. England, there was a pre-match scuffle in the tunnel. Um, do you make anything of that? Well, probably a little bit because it was. A, it felt to me a little bit like, you know, our 1990 game, the 2000 game as well when England lost the Grand Slam game. And this felt like another one where... England were favourites, strong favourites going into the game, and and something got under their skin, um, and they weren't, they never got going. That it just felt like they got taken by surprise at the start of the game for some reason, um, and then there was so many points down at half time, and then decision making. Look, we've been there, and it, f- it feels like there's twenty five on the pitch in the in the opposite colour. You feel like you're getting decisions against you. You start forcing things. You make mistakes. And it just felt like one of those days, almost from very early on, that that things were going to go wrong. Well, my point about the pre-match tunnel scuffle was that if that had translated into them coming out, being angry and giving a rash of penalties away because they were overcommitted, I could understand that, but not the ineffectual sort of way in which they seemed to start and continue for most of the first half. It wasn't until they were staring down the barrel of a very, quite a big defeat, actually, at half-time, that they en- energised themselves and came back and looked anything like sharp enough. There were... There were let, let's, say that, let's get this right. England have not become a bad team because they lost one game. 
There are significantly good aspects about their play, not least their ability to win games, majority of games. Um, but the back row for me is now becoming a concern. I'm never a fan of playing players out of position unless you have to. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you totally. So Laws is out of position. That means Rob Shaw's had to be moved again to where Jones said that he didn't want him in the first place. And the breakdown suffered, not just because of the back rub, although that's an, an absolutely key part of it when you look at the contribution of the Scottish back row, but the breakdown in general for England is a problem because when they go well, they get it right, they get the numbers in, they get ball. But too many times you see them struggling to get the numbers in in the right order or overcommitting numbers so that they haven't got enough for the next breakdown. And that, to me, is a concern all round because if they don't get that right, then you can't get momentum. Yeah, and they didn't get both offensively and defensively. That they were, they were outplayed at the breakdown in, in both, both ways. And Scotland got their ball probably easier because England didn't slow their ball down as yeah. well as Scotland not only stole England's ball but slowed it down. And then when England were taking the ball in, it was a lack of numbers. But but again, this sort of word lack of intensity, which it just, you know, I was in the crowd and you can sense when a team has got intensity going into tackles, going into the game. England just looked a bit standoffish. And, and that's, they were like that in Dublin as well at the end of last year's Six Nations, which was, again, a really poor performance under Eddie. So they've had a couple of these where it just looks like they've gone missing for some reason, perhaps mentally, perhaps physically. Um, and then it was too late to get back into the game. At least they did fix things up a little bit in the second half. But by 22-6, having conceded three tries in a cauldron that was Murrayfield, was a, was a, imp- almost impossible to come back from. I mean, people were talking about the refereeing and the only decision which I queried was the one with Launchbury when he didn't immediately signal a penalty and then seemed to penalise when Farrell had intercepted. And I would have thought that he would have been, his arm would have been out straight away. Having said that, that was not the reason England lost. England lost because they didn't have the right intensity. They got mullered at the breakdown. And Scotland's inventiveness in attack was far superior. So um, they've got no complaint about that. They were outplayed and outthought. When you're going forward and you're looking at how to improve this team, the scrum needs sorting because it has not been an offensive weapon for England. I mean, they had the Georgian back over. It didn't seem to do much good to me. They didn't make any dents in there. you know. And, and if Cole is not going to, at tight head, give the opposition a hard time, then put someone in who is a ball carrier. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And... <sighs> One of the one, if you look at there was something in the paper today about Dan Cole's stats. You know, I think no carries. I don't think he touched the ball. It's a bit like Jeff Probing. We tried to make sure Jeff didn't touch the ball. There was a reason we, for that when we were playing. Yeah. But in the modern game, the modern game, you can't you can't have that. You know, the the front five have got to be ball carriers. Carriers, they've got to be over the ball, um, and that's just not that energy's not coming from the front five. Marowitoji's there's not the energy there that there was a year ago for some reason or there hasn't certainly wasn't on Saturday then you've touched on the balance in the back row um so that they've they've got some weaknesses there that that when somebody gets into them in in a big way they don't seem to be able to respond um 
And we talked earlier about how important Billy Vunapola is to this group of players, this team. That in itself is a slight danger because if you're relying so much on on one player um, and the impact that Billy has on getting this team on the front foot, if they get on the front foot, they're a very, as all sides are, a very dangerous side. But when somebody stops them and they can't get any, any momentum, either through the scrum or line-out drives or with ball carriers, who, who and Billy does that really well. And when they were at their very best in the first sort of year of Eddie's reign... There was almost a tag team of ball carrying between Mako Vunipola, who was really sharp, Billy. They were almost taking turns on getting on the front foot. Then Launchbreeze and, and Cruz and Itoji could come in behind it. Then you put Youngs, Ford and Farrell on the front foot. You're a, you're a different team. At the moment, we're stuck in the trenches and we can't, we can't seem to get out of them. I mean, Ford is a very good reader of the game on the front foot. He plays flat. His distribution is very good. Not so impressive as, to be fair, all fly arms are when uh, the game is static and you need to move on. I mean, in the end, Jones made the substitution, moved Farrell to 10. Do you think he's going to change that initial philosophy or not? Well, I can't I've, see it. No, I still think we go back to the same debate that we had at the beginning of the Six Nations, really, the Ford-Farrell debate. Um, I still like them as a, as a pair, but it's other other people have to put the team on the front foot mm-hmm. um, because otherwise you're sort of conceding defeat that you can't get onto the front foot. Um, th- they have the option of Teo or Tuolangi if he ever gets back to, to come in and add that bulk, but it's it's not really um, sort of nine and ten. It's very difficult for nine and ten to put a side on the front foot if 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 the game in front of you is is not giving you that. You've got to then look at different ways of, of getting territory and finding a different way of playing. A lot of people were criticising Danny Cairns, saying you know, his service wasn't quick enough. But in his defence, when you've got people counter-rucking and England players being hurled backwards and treading on your fingers as you try to pick the ball up, it's not, you know, it's not the ideal thing, is it? You need to blasting players off the ball, advancing the, uh, the offside line, and you know, England won't do that. Anyway, enough about England, because although they didn't play well, Let's not make it all about that because Scotland were tremendous and we've got Sir Ian McGeekin on the line, so I'm sure that he will give us his thoughts. Ian, hello. <laughs> Brian, good evening. Well, we, we've, we've discussed some English shortcomings. Let's discuss Scotland's <laughs> um, long goings, or whatever, whatever the word is. They were very impressive, weren't they? Yes, they were. Um... I thought very clever. They worked the tactics out well. Gregor Townsend had done a lot of thinking, I think, and they'd learned a lot of lessons from from Wales and then France. You could see, particularly around the set piece, that I, I, I was impressed. They were never going to dominate the set piece, but they got parity, which for Scotland was a winning position in some respects. If they could, uh, if they could work hard at the breakdowns, which which of course they did. The breakdown is crucial in the modern game because from there you either get or seed uh, <clears throat> impetus. Why yeah, were... I mean, Scotland were very accurate. Why were they so dominant, though? I think, hey, their body angles were lower than England. Uh, and when you get into a rock situation, I always called it the battle of the shoulders. If you end up with your shoulders lower than your opponent, you always win the rock. And Scotland, time and time again, were under the England players. So they, you know, they had nothing to to really go for. Uh, plus, I think they they were quite happy 
to send two and three and even four players into the ruck to make it really awkward. Uh, and and I think uh, because it's so important now that making that sort of decision on the hoof at the breakdown, whether you get rid of the first man, they targeted the England players really well, um, got underneath them, thinking England only wanted to send one or two into the to the rock because they'd got obviously the structures they wanted to play, uh, and Scotland were prepared um, to invest heavily in numbers if it needed it. To, to really disrupt the breakdown. And uh, I, I thought the back row, you know, but Graham Gilchrist as well, you know, they, they all were making sort of good follow-up decisions after the first contact. Geach, hi, it's Rob here. Um, hi, Rob. <laughs> we're both having nightmares from about 27 years ago, 28 years ago. <laughs> it felt, it actually felt the same somehow, even just, before kickoff, it just felt like there was something in the air up there. I don't know what it what it was, but it was it was an amazing experience at one level. And I think when you get Scotland playing like that, um, it, it's sort of it's it's the pace they put on the ball as well, which which having got on the front foot and the width they put on it, and the balance to their back line, especially with with the way Finn plays, and obviously he had a, one of his good days, but with the pace that he's got at outside centre. Um, and the wingers, and then Hogg doing his stuff. They 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 actually caused England a lot of problems across the park, didn't they? They did. Yeah. I mean, um, again, I think you know, got to give Gregor Townsend a lot of credit. He's he, he's thought it through. He 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 got them playing at the line. But quite interestingly, you know, as you know, you can play flat. You don't have to start flat. It's where you it's where you take the ball. Uh, and uh, I thought England was standing a lot. There's a lot of standing passing and standing flat and then being put under pressure, whereas Scotland arrived at a flat line when it was needed. Um, and I thought very cleverly kept their outside backs wide. Mm. Uh, so it meant that they could run square or run on an inside shoulder, which Hugh Jones probably is the best at of any of the centres in the championship at the moment. Uh, but they started wide. Um, and I think they'd obviously isolated uh, Joseph and his wingers because they tend to want to press very hard in the midfield and keep the wingers out wide for uh, any of the kicks that might come from, from Finn Russell because he, he does like those cross-field kicks. Uh, and I thought they played that space that England left them between... Joseph outside centre and his wingers very well. Um, but they did it because he, John, it, it's not easy to do. And it's why, you know, Ireland intercepted Wales, interesting, because they were trying to play in to out. And Scotland actually played out to in, uh, which which does put a different line on it for, for defenders. So you can't afford to look in, um, and which is where Hugh Jones, you know, he caught Nathan Hughes out. Uh, and and Farrell for for his first try, and uh, he did the same uh, for his second. And there was a real sense of urgency and pace around what they were doing as well, which for some reason England just looked a little bit leaden-footed, both in attack and defence. And and with Brian and I were talking earlier, just trying to understand what what has what has caused that, because you you know you know what's coming up at Murrayfield. Nobody's got any excuse to. To ever say, look, we weren't expecting that. 
you know, and it's just the same every time. It's it's really quite surprising. Yeah, I, I thought um, that they actually followed each other, and they were. The, I thought the forwards actually, Brian. I don't know if you agree. I, the Scottish forwards and the speed around off the ball mm. uh, was tremendous. So there was very rarely any single runners going in at the contact. It was always, you know, the ball carrier and then their support player would target, not not bind on sometimes, target the English defender. So you're actually taking the defender out of the game with two of you. Uh, and, you know, you have to do that sometimes, double up against bigger men. Uh, and, and obviously then you get that natural um, speed into the game, which which Finn Russell in particular, but, you know, the outside backs, um, I thought, handled very well. Well, England got uh, a number of penalties. They conceded a number of penalties for, for being isolated. Uh, and mm. so either it's the fault of the support runners who aren't getting there quick enough, or the ball carrier's got to fight that little bit longer before he goes to ground to give them the opportunity. So it's one or the other. But um, a big problem for England, again, number of penalties... Uh, talk about Scotland's uh, overall discipline. People, you know, if you're looking at it with purely um, white tinted glasses, as a lot of fans do, they were saying they didn't get the rub of the green with the penalty decisions or the referee in the breakdown. Well, that's just the way it goes to me. And Scotland were cohesive there. And you get caught if you're going in ones and twos. If you go in the committed uh, surge with three or four players, and you're going to get far more from the referee, I think. And do you, do you think that was one of Scotland's uh, main tactics when they went into the game, to commit those numbers? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think, I think it's one shape that might be put on the game. I think, I think Scotland, Ireland weren't dissimilar against Wales. Um, when you get there early, um, I think the referee sees a better picture. Mm. So the later arrivals... You know, it looks if you if you're off your feet or or you're slow or you you're sort of half there or not, um, you you don't you don't get the same picture to the referee, and that sometimes if it looks right, you it it's it'll be seen as being right, and uh, that's where as I say, Scotland weren't afraid of putting numbers in the breakdown. It wasn't ones and you know they 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 take the first man away and then. If England didn't have a support player there or they were a bit casual, Scotland would send another two in. And, and suddenly, you know, it was mayhem at, at, the, at the breakdown. Then England have to react from players two or three metres away to try and retrieve the situation. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, some of the penalties come. I thought, they got a, I thought England got a little bit individualistic of taking, you know, Courtney Laws got mm-hmm. caught a few times just picking and going without support as though there was no communication around the pick and goes. Mm. Uh, and when you start playing individually, um, um, you know, as you said, Brian, and you don't have that support player who's following you in, uh, it does become a real battle. Well, Scotland now have performed really well at home. Uh, England, Australia, New Zealand. Cliché question, but can they do it away from home? Because Ireland <laughs> is a big, big test. It is, uh, you know, and you, I think we'd all agree Ireland are probably the ones now in the driving seat for the championship. Um, you know, they were 
impressive again, although didn't get away from Wales. Um, and, and I think tactically they've moved on. Joe Schmidt has got his forwards now paired up across the field more. They've got two half-backs who are totally at ease with the way they want to play, and they're very accurate. I, I think it's actually the two best breakdown teams playing each other head-to-head in Dublin. So I think it will be um, quite an interesting battle. Well, Geach, we will, we will soon see. It should be a cracker over in Dublin. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Brian, as ever. Well, we've had a Scottish perspective on what might happen in Dublin. Time to get an Irish perspective. Very pleased to say we can speak to Stephen Ferris, a former Ireland flanker. Are you there, Stephen? I'm here. Thanks, Brian. Now then, Ireland, I said before the tournament that Ireland looked the most complete side, a squad. Uh, I haven't changed my opinion. The scoreline uh, included an intercept try, and right at the end it was close, but I always felt that Ireland had the upper hand. How impressive a side do you think this is? I think on current form, it obviously is very impressive. Um, people are starting to nitpick now with you know, easy, soft tries being conceded, um, especially against Italy a couple of weeks ago and then conceding another few there against Wales on Saturday. But you've got to remember that Ireland missed um, a lot of kicks at goal. They missed some, a, a lot of points. Um, and yes, they scored in the 80th minute, but I always thought that they were in control in the game. And even when they did go behind early in the in the first half, they were able to make sure that they went in at the break with the last play of the first half and get their noses back in front. There just seems to be um, an air of inevitability about this Ireland team that whatever situation they're in, if they're leading, that they can go on and win the game. And if they're behind, they'll get themselves out of a situation to go on and win the game. And um, I think Johnny Wilkinson was saying that as well about this Ireland team, that they are, they are on a high, they're on the crest of a wave. And... Uh, for me, they are the team to beat. We discussed the breakdown and its significance in the Calcutta Cup clash, but in Ireland's games that I've seen in the last two or three years and in Munster and Leinster's games in the Pro 14 and the European competitions, that has been one of the standout things for me, their accuracy, their work at the breakdown, the way they commit numbers, the speed with which they get there, the ferocity with which they hit, Uh, and clear. Uh, Is this a a general uh, tactic in Irish rugby to put numbers in, or is it something they've learnt and is is now innate, which is probably even better? I think um, if you look back in probably the last 15 years, the the competitiveness of the the Irish back row has been the biggest strength of the Ireland team. You just look at all the names that's played in the back row over the last decade and um, it's just always so competitive and it's still like that at the minute. You know, Jimmy Heaslip hanging up the boots today. I know you might touch on that. But guys who have just been there and done it, but you've guys coming in, chomping at the bit, guys like Dan Levy, Jack Conan, who are just really impressive athletes, really physical, powerful. They make the right decisions at the right time. They're very accurate. I think at the game at the weekend against Wales, they lost one ruck the whole game. Yes. They had over 60% possession. And when you have that amount of possession, you're going to make the opposition concede penalties. Ireland only conceded four penalties, and everybody's talking about how good Ireland's breakdown is. I think, yes, they put numbers in in defence, and that might shorten them up slightly on the outside. You might also talk about that, considering Wales were able to get them on the edge a few times, and I think Scotland will look to exploit that. But for me, they are very, 
they just work really hard for one another. And again, you look at that Scotland performance against England, I think it was a work rate and an attitude. And sometimes, you know, getting your head in there and holding on for that extra split sec- second is just down to wanting it more. Um, and Ireland just have the bit between their teeth at the minute, Brian. Stephen, hi, it's Rob here. Um, hi, Rob. I, I think the bit that I like about Ireland as well is, and Brian and I were talking earlier about having key players in key positions and the halfbacks, Ireland's halfbacks, you know, they stay on the field for a long time. Um, they're arguably the best halfback pairing in the world, um, having seen what, what they did with the Lions as well during the, the summer. And and that, that I think, gives the side such a lot of confidence, knowing that they're there to... to they seem very comfortable in their own skin and their game plan. They know exactly what's going on. And they're always going to get you out of jail if you need... You know, I mean, obviously, Johnny, Johnny did get you out of jail in Paris. Um... <laughs> But when you've got those that experience, it must give a side a lot of confidence. Definitely, I totally agree with you. Um, and I think speaking to fans and speaking to a lot of the rugby uh, crowd over the last number of weeks, they were really nervous about this Welsh game. Um, and they were talking about the inexperience that was in the squad. Going into that Welsh game, young fellas like James Ryan and Porter getting an opportunity and other guys that haven't been tested in uh, circumstances like that. But if you look at those key positions, yes, nine and ten. But you've Rob Carney there, full back. He's been there. He's done it. You look at in in the in the back row, you've Peter O'Mahony. In the second row, you've Devon Toner. And in the front row, you've Rory Best. Just experienced, littered in key positions, big game winners, and um, that have been there and done it in key positions. And um, I think the balance of the squad in general is fantastic. But you're absolutely right. The nine and ten for me just make this Irish team tick. Um, and if one of those guys goes down, I don't think that they function um, as good. And even when Joey Carberry came on that last 20 minutes um, uh, against Italy, you, you could see that the whole mindset and the way that the, the players uh, finished off that game just wasn't the same. Um, and Johnny Sexton drives his forwards around the pitch. And I thought at the weekend against Wales, the options that he had inside and outside him all day long was just absolutely fantastic so yeah in attack those guys are the driving force and um, they're certainly on form as well which also helps Well Ireland have just announced the immediate retirement of um, Jamie Heaslip what would you like to say about his contribution to Irish rugby? Well Jamie Heaslip in in a couple of short words Brian is is someone who um, I have a lot of admiration for Um, and we come onto the scene at exactly the same time winning our first cap together in the last ever international at Lansdowne Road against the Pacific Islands. Eddie O'Sullivan gave us her first caps. Um, he went on to achieve a lot more than I did. Um, he's a very decorated player, winning lots of trophies. Um, and I think he can look back on his career with immense pride um, that he's done every jersey that he's played in, whether it be Leinster, whether it be Ireland, or whether it be the British and Irish Lions, uh, a lot of justice. Um, and for me, to Jamie, I wish him all the very best in the next chapter of his life. But uh, he was an absolute gent on and off the pitch and a tremendous servant to the international rugby in general. I won't tempt fate and start talking about Grand Slams because you've got Scotland to negotiate and Scotland were very impressive uh, against England. But can they do that? Can they break you at at Dublin? I don't think so, no. Um, The reasons for that is... But I, I think they got the rub of the green. Uh, you know, the decisions that went against them. I know there was a bit of talk after the game about some of Nigel Owen's decisions. And 
just everything kind of fell for them and you know every decision they kind of just got out of jail when England were getting on the attack and something happened like the Mike Bryan and some taking the guy off the ball it's, for me you know you look at the last five minutes of the game over in Paris where France were looked like they were infringing and not rolling away and Nigel Owens just let the scene just let the game go and everything that England kind of were, were, were doing at the weekend he seemed to pick up um, so for me uh, Scotland team coming to Dublin they would need absolutely everything to go their way and I don't think that uh, uh, in their own backyard Ireland are going to concede I think it was 13 penalties that England conceded against Scotland so I don't think that's going to happen um, and if the 9 and 10 like Rob talked about there function the way they have done over the last uh, the last 4 or 5 weeks I think uh, Ireland are going to win by a similar scoreline uh, to Wales 10-15 points something like that Well Stephen um, we won't have long to wait to find out but thank you very much great as always thank you thanks very much Brian take Cheers. care bye bye time now to switch to Wales and we have got the company of Adam Jones the former Wales prop 95 caps for his country Adam hello hello how are you uh, two consecutive losses but Italy are up next so uh, should settle some nerves I thought Wales were a bit slow to start uh, in yeah. the uh, in the Ireland game, possibly because Ireland do what they do and kept the ball and kept possession, so it's very difficult to to get into the game. But they finished well. Um, how do you think their campaign's gone? Um, well, it was obviously the first game up against Scotland, outstanding. You know, put a lot of pressure on the, you know the Scottish runners. But I thought we were good against England at Twickenham, mm-hmm. and I, I just thought Ireland, the halfbacks, controlled the game well for them. They were, I thought, in all honesty, I would expected us to probably dominate up front, especially with Furlong not playing. But, you know, that didn't materialise. The young kid who came in the tight did a great job. Mm. Obviously, Henderson not being there as well. But, you know, the the young, again, the, the other young, uh, just Ryan, I think the second over was fantastic. So, no, I, didn't, I don't think, you know, I think we only had sort of, did I read, did I hear about like 30% territory or something crazy like that? So, you know, obviously Johnny Sexton was fantastic in the way he played. You know, it was one point of the game. All attacks sort of slowed down for them, and he just sort of turned uh, and then sort of a banana kick into the corner, and uh, you know kept turning wheels on and put them back uh, play out of the twenty-two. And we, you know, uh, how we actually managed to um, stay in the game, and uh, you know, being with a shout of winning at the end was uh, showed sort of great resolve by the boys to actually dig in and fight. You know, something which you. you generally do expect of as well, Stephen. Well, one of the reasons for that is that, fortunately for Warren Gatland, he's got a headache in terms of selection because players have stepped forward due to injury, in, especially in the backs yeah. now, and they've proved that they are you know, significant attacking threats. So can you see the Wales backline going forward with uh, a lot of changes or is it a case of mix and match? Um, well, Gat's come out and said he's going to make a few back home. They're talking about dropping Dan Bigger. Um, you know, everyone's going to pop it in for uh, some of his reactions. But um, no, I think there'll be a few changes. Maybe, um, oh, I don't know, do I think put something new in the centre, George North in the centre, maybe. Adam, it's Rob here. The, the, the Wales, though, I mean, my view of things, if they, if they finish the next two games really strongly, given that they sort of have, Okay, lost away, but lost away yeah. to England and away to Ireland, who 
who were probably the everybody's two favourites for the competition, given all the injuries Wales have had. Maybe just a little lack of self-belief going to Twickenham and, and maybe even Dublin, which accounts for the slow start. Yeah. If they finish really strongly with, with the players they've blooded as well, you know, they're, they're probably going to feel pretty pleased with themselves, I would have thought. Oh, I think so. I think you know, there's a lot of talk about how you know, we're trying to play a new uh, brand of rugby. And you can certainly see that. that all the, I thought Shingler's drive was outstanding. And we kind of went, we went, um, you know, went up the left-hand side and then managed to get a ball back across to um, Navidi. And, you know, it's not something you generally see the Welsh teams in the last sort of 10, 10 years, certainly, um, scoring tries like that. So, you know, there's, and there's boys, again, like Shingler, like Navidi, like, um, you know, got Elliot D coming off the bench, these type of players, that, you know, they can play this new brand of rugby we want to play. And, uh, you know, as you said, it's only we're developing these players now with, a, you know, like, unfortunately a few injuries had, but, you know, it's going to be good for this coming up the next World Cup in 18 months' time. So, no, I think, you know, Twickenham's obviously a really uh, tough place to go. So is London, well, so is Aviva and uh, Dublin. So it's, um, I don't think they would have, char- they, they would have definitely targeted all their home games and you, you target to win everyone, but I think, Two good results now against uh, the French and Italians, and yeah, I think it'd be a pretty. I think Gats would be pretty happy with how it's gone. Adam, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, Mike. Time for a quick word on France Italy. Uh, first match played outside Paris uh, in the Six Nations. Bastereau, well, for me, he's not an international centre, uh, but but you know he, he did make significant contributions. Return post suspension. How? Can you judge France on what they've done so far? Where I mean, England are going there. England should look for a reaction. I expect one. Uh, Eddie Jones and the players must demand one of themselves. But uh, whatever France do or don't have, at the moment they have a lot of power. Is that enough? Well, it shouldn't be, Brian, should it? In no, the, it the, be. the way the modern game is going, it's sort of... It, and we've touched on England sort of just maybe stalling a bit in some ways, but I'm sure they can they can put that right because they've got the players. But you look at the sort of rugby that Scotland are trying to play, that Ireland are playing within within control, but they've got such good halfbacks. And Wales, Gats has finally, you know, he has finally moved into a different way of playing. Um, and it just feels like the, the home countries, the type of rugby that they're playing in terms of marrying that physicality with with some pace and some skill and putting some movement on the ball, are almost leaving France and Italy in a bit of a. It's almost they're in the second division of of the Six Nations, if you like, and they, Italy may be trying to, but just don't have the players to do it. So it, you know, it, it it it's clearly now after what happened um, up in Murrayfield, a massive massive game for England, and as we know, not always the easiest place to go, mm. but. But it, the, England have got to really find a way to finish powerfully because the, 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 the flip side of that coin is France away if they come unstuck there and then Ireland at, at Twickenham, you know, you, these next two weeks are, are going to be pretty important. Well, I think what you can say is that unless you are absolutely on your mettle in terms of your mental fortitude and that translates itself into your defensive commitments then they have enough power to just sort of simply overwhelm teams. Absolutely. And, and again, it goes back to this, the mind, doesn't it? We talked about how poor Scotland were in that first game in Cardiff, which was really a mental thing, almost appearing in Cardiff 
as if they just finished the Australia game and not getting into the game. Um, England, I'm sure they weren't complacent going into Murrayfield. I mean, goodness me, if they were, then you know that's that's a really poor reflection. But it just felt a bit like it going the way the game started. You you sense it in the first 20 minutes, don't you? You sense where a team is at mentally. Um, so England are going to have to be right up because you, France will be up for it as they showed against Ireland and quite frankly probably could have beaten and maybe should have beaten Ireland in that first game. So they will go back to Paris after Marseille um, and England will have to be mentally right on it as well as tactically and, and technically, which, which they weren't up in Merrifield. And very quickly, Italy, Con Roche has talked about the job on a longer-term basis, I understand that, and they have shown in patches that they can play good rugby. The problem for them, obviously, is 80-minute performances just aren't there, and when you're playing against teams who do play for significantly longer periods on the front foot, they're going to struggle. They are, unfortunately, and you know they might be showing glimpses, but they're, they're showing glimpses when games effectively are already lost, um, and we know when players do drop off a little bit. Yeah. They're trying to play, and they're playing with, with some, some pace and some width. Um, and at the end of the day, Connor's only got so much to work with, and he's, he's got to create the new brand and the new breed of, of Italian player, and, and it looks, from a distance, it looks like it's quite a... a Quite a long job. OK, time to turn to Ruby's Laws. Pleased to say we've got Nigel Owens on the line now. Nigel, uh, we have to respect this, and I do respect it. You're not contractually allowed to talk about your own performance or the performances of your uh, contemporaries, so uh, we must respect that. Can you just tell me the breakdown? What is the law relating to who can and can't go in? First player, second player, third player? There's been a change in the in, in the breakdown law this year. There's, there's no actual change in the, the player who gets in there first can get his hands on the ball and play the ball before the ruck is formed. If he has his hands on the ball already and then the ruck forms afterwards, then he can continue to play that ball. As long as he is trying to win possession of his ball, you just can't keep your hand in there or, or push the ball into the player on the ground looking for a penalty. You must be trying to play the ball. So nothing's changed really from the new laws. The only slight difference is, is that when the tackler now is on the wrong side and gets to his feet, he must come round and come back through the gate just like any other player. So that's one change. But as long as he's still the first guy there, as long as he's come back and in through his own side, he's fine to play the ball as long as he's on his feet. And the other slight change is really the first guy in over the ball. So let's say that I come in and I stand over the ball. So let's say that I am... Uh, we'll we'll say um, Wales against New Zealand, for example. So I'm not sort of (laughs) touching on anything that may have happened on the weekend. So the Welsh player comes in. He's the first guy there after the tackle. He's the attacking player. He stands over the ball. If then the New Zealand player comes in and goes for that ball, then makes contact with the Welsh player, he's entitled to do that because he's actually come in, got his hands on the ball, before he's formed the ruck. So technically now he is the first player in before the ruck forms. So he's allowed to do that. Because the Welsh player is first, it does not mean the next player in cannot get his hands on the ball. If the next player comes in and binds onto the Welsh player over the ball, then a ruck is formed and nobody can put their hands on, on, on the ball. So that's basically how the referee uh, the breakdown is 
is written in law, and that's the way that it's refereed as well. And just one other thing that I'm picking up, um, not from the weekend particularly, but throughout the season really, is people saying that hands are on the ground. If your hands are on the ground and you're supporting your body weight before the ruck is formed, you are not doing nothing illegal. What you must not do is go off your feet. So when you see referees saying hands on the ground first, what they're saying is technically wrong, really. What they should be saying, you are off your feet. You weren't supporting your body weight, which means your hands have gone too far in front of the ball and you're off your feet and then you come back on to the ball. That is the offence. But if a guy comes in over the ball and just touches the ground around the ball before he actually gets to the ball, as long as he was supporting his body weight, then that's play on. Hands on the floor or touching the ground is not illegal. The offence is not supporting your body weight. So if you deem the player's hands on the ground, which means that the ground is supporting his body weight, then that's a penalty, and it's a penalty for not supporting your body weight, which means basically that your hands were too far away from the ball, and that's what was keeping you up. Well, I know the answer to this, but uh, tunnel fracas before a game, if you'd have seen it, what could you do about it as a referee? Um, nothing really, to, to be honest, Brian, as far as the whole context of the game goes. If, if it was something that I saw and I warranted being... Um, sort of reported to the site commissioner and stuff, then, then obviously that's what you do. Then you would put a written report in and say, look, this is what I saw before the game. And it would be dealt with then as, as a sighting procedure and stuff then after the game. But you don't, there's nothing you can do as a referee um, to say, you, you know, <laughs> you're yellow carded, you're mm-hmm. sent off or nothing like that because the game hasn't even, hasn't, hasn't even started. Um, so your authority starts? Your authority starts, yeah. Look, <clears throat> um, on the... Well, on the whistle, really, I guess. You know, when, when that's when your authority starts in what you can do regarding players being sent off or players warned or stuff like that. You know, anything then before or after the game, if there's something happens after the game is finished. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody comes up to you and sort of uh, a player comes up and passes some comments about you or something after the game or something coming off the field or, you know, afterwards or something, that you can you can that, put that through a citing procedure. But the actual sort of laws you have as a referee is you, you know, you deal with that on, on, on the field only. Nigel, hi, it's Rob here. Um, hi Rob, how are you? I, I'm good, thanks. I was up in Edinburgh with uh, my Scottish friends, Gavin Hastings and Doddy Weir at the weekend, so I <laughs> took a fair amount of stick. Well, when Brian and I played, I think we both probably gave referees a bit of a hard time on the field, and, and my time at the RFU, I was involved in um, seeing how closely the referees, how hard they work, um, and I, I just think the modern game that you guys are refereeing, the pace at which this thing is flying around and players' body movements, the concentration levels and the ability to deal with things for the whole 80 minutes, it's a real credit to all of you um, because these players are... I mean, we always did push the laws, but it's all happening even quicker now. And it's just... I just wondered if there was any sort of... How you get into a zone as, as a referee and players... Players have the ability during a game to maybe sometimes go out of the game and sort of be able to relax for two minutes. You've got 80 minutes where you, you're there the whole time. Do you have a sort of zone in and zone out a bit when there's a break in the game? Um, do you know, funny enough, I, I was asked, um, I think somebody's put um, a question, uh, a nine-year-old son was asking her to ask me a question on, on Twitter earlier, actually, about um, did I enjoy the game on Saturday and I said look when you're refereeing the game you are focused 
and concentrating for so much. That, that is the key thing for that 80 minutes is your concentration and your focus, your work rate and everything else. That is the main thing. And you, you, you don't really appreciate sometimes if it's a great game, if it's a poor game. Sometimes you know it's a fast game because the lungs are burning and you know there's a lot of movement, but you don't really know. People say, well, that was a great game. And well, was it? Because you don't really know until you sit back and, and review the game because you've got to be in that zone. And, and I think that is, comes down then to the, to the preparation then, I think, of the way that you prepare and get totally focused. You have your checklist of, you know, of, of what you think you can expect on Saturday in that game. So you go into a game thinking, right, this game is going to be, I would think that this game is going to be, for example, hugely contested in the context, you know, like most games are. Some are even more contested. So you really have to then focus and be zoned in on, on the contact area. Some other games where you know, right, some sides, they tend to maul a lot. So you really have to be focused and zoned in when the maul takes place then that it's set up legally. So all that is part of your preparation, really, for the game. Um, and we've been in camp. We, we get in camp and... Um, Every sort of Wednesday during the Six Nations, there's five camps. When there's a week, there's no camp this week because there's no game on the weekend. But then we're back in camp next Wednesday where all the referees, TMOs and assistant referees involved in the last week game and the coming up game, we get together then in, in London for about six, five, six hours that day to discuss what we did well in the last round, what we need to uh, improve on, if there's something we need to be aware of that teams are starting to do, that we need to sort of keep on top of it, um, things we did well, things we didn't do well, what we can do better moving forward and everything like that. So, so Alan Roland has brought us all together in those camps, and I think that's been hugely beneficial for us as officials then in, in getting us into that zone and getting us focused and ready for what you know the game may bring. And you, you prepare, I prepare for the game, you know, on, on could be some trends that you need to make notes of to be aware of. But, but basically, as long as I go out to that game and focus and concentrate for the 80 minutes, I just then referee what happens in front of me. I don't go into the game with any preconceived ideas that the player does this, the team does this, or this may happen. I just rather referee what happens in front of me with the experience that you have then. And by concentrating and focusing, you, you know you have those things that you can call on that you need for those particular situations that arise in the game, really. How honest is that debrief, uh, Nigel? Because it's very honest, okay. um, Brian. It, it is. It is very honest, um, and I think you know, as as a ref, that, that, that's one thing that really, really gets me going is when people accuse a referee of being being a cheat. You know, if somebody has a go at me on social media because he didn't like my performance or didn't like with some decisions, and, and sometimes they are correct. Sometimes in the game you, you get a decision wrong or you may not have refereed as well as you usually referee in some games and, and that's fine. You know, I, I would never block anybody on Twitter for thinking that I didn't referee well. What I do block people on Twitter for is when somebody calls somebody a uh, a referee says that you that you were cheat or you were a bias. That's what really gets me. So somebody says that they're gone, that they're, they're blocked. So when we get together, we are very honest as as a group of referees um, in things that we didn't do well, things we need to work on, decisions. Yeah, I can understand. And some decisions will be. Look, there was no other decision the referee could have made at this time because that's exactly the picture he's seeing on the field. So it was impossible to make another decision, and those things happen. But also we're honest as well in saying, yeah, I should have seen this or I should have been positioned in a different position or I would have seen this and we need to improve on, on this area of the refereeing. Or So it is, it's a very honest, because um, that's the only way you're going to improve and, and learn. Because you know, Saturday was my 81st test match, but you still continue to learn and continue to thrive to, to, 
to to be better at what you're doing for for the good of of the game and the most in people on the field, which are which are the players. So it's a very honest and and open one. It is, and, and unless you're going to be honest and open, you even as a referee, as a player, as a pundit, whatever you do, unless you're honest and open with yourself on performance or whatever you do, then you are not going to maintain that standard or improve that standard. Nigel, thanks very much for coming on. Great as always. Take care. Pleasure, Brian. All the best. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will, would have wanted us to put points to Nigel out of that. Uh, I would have wanted to, but at the end of the day, he's, if he's contractually bound, then I've got to respect that. Let's have a look at the, his performance from our point of view. Always at breakdowns, you can make cases for he didn't penalise that, he did do that. To me, the launch pre one was a bit strange, as I said, in terms of not being signalled immediately. But after that, you know, if they get away with more than you, why? Why are they doing it and you're not doing it? That's a, a simple answer to me. I, I think that all that absolutely. And look, we we've all argued the toss for years over certain decisions. But actually, the key thing is, which you know, and we got it wrong at times. We all get it wrong. Is uh, how are you adapting to the referee? How are you working out? Are you getting together and going? Look, he's really, really sharp at the breakdown here. Because England gave up, what, two, three... Every time they got into the 22 in the first 20 minutes, I think there was two turnover penalties. Well, they had right 15 from the start. turnovers and 13 penalties. And you talk to Stephen Ferris, he's talking about four penalties given away. You know, 10, against, uh, 10 penalties against Wales, double figures against Italy when they scored seven tries and were top, still give double figures away. I'm sorry, but if this happens three times in a row... The common denominator is not the referee, is it? It's it's recognising what is going on and what Scotland were really good at on England ball. And England did have a lot of ball. They turned it over either through their own handling errors or getting turned over at the breakdown. And after the first three breakdowns, England should have been saying, we're light on numbers in the breakdown because Barclay and Watson and, and Wilson, they were they the timing and their targeting, whether... They thought that England were going to be light on numbers because England thought they were going to win the breakdown easily. But you've got to react as a, as a team. And, you, and England didn't really react all the way through the game in putting an extra number into the breakdown or, or getting, a, getting beyond the ball. They allowed that. And so that's not Nigel's fault. He, his interpretation of the breakdown is that that guy from the defensive side is allowed in there and, and it's you, the, the attacking team, it's your responsibility to do something about it, not mine. If I think it's a penalty to the defending team, I'm going to give it. And there must have been, I don't know how many breakdown uh, penalties against England when England had the ball because England weren't protecting the ball. OK, time now to switch to the women's Six Nations, which is running in parallel to the men's. Let me just give you the results over the weekend. Ireland beat Wales 35-12. France bageled, I think that's the modern term. Italy 57-0. And uh, England's women did better than the men. They won 43-8. Very pleased to say we can speak to a World Cup winning coach now. He was the coach for England's 2014 success. Gary Street. Hello, Gary. Hi, Gary. What do England need to do to ensure they win in Grenoble in two weeks' time? Uh, front, 
physically with the, with the forwards. Um, it, it's going to be a cracking game. I've been out, we've played in Grenoble uh, before and Stade des Alpes. It's a fantastic venue. Um, and it's going to be an absolute cracker, I think. The uh, France looking very strong this year. Good mix of uh, some really powerful forwards. We've got some really exciting backs and uh, it's going to be definitely uh, England's biggest test. Do you think that, I mean, France, a bit like their men's team, have got a lot of power in their team. Do you think that England have got the that little bit extra when it comes to creativity? I think on the, on the night, it could go either way. France are, are some of their men, really. We, for, for years and years, you never know quite who's going to turn up uh, at home at Grenoble. Um, they've turned up a few times in the past. They beat us in 2014, the year we won the World Cup. Stopped our Grand Slam this year, at, uh, that year in Grenoble. So they're going to be very formidable. And they've got a very good pitch and drive game. Um, they've added a bit to their game, I think, with some of the backs. They've come through their sevens programme with a bit more guile. Um, but in England at full strength and England playing well, they're definitely good enough to win, but it's going to be a, yeah, it's a tough test out there. Well, Ireland uh, atoned for their loss against Wales in the World Cup last year, winning 35-12. But I detect that um, at the moment, Irish rugby's in a bit of flux with the women. They, were, they looked uh, a, year, a year or two ago probably stronger than they are now. Yeah, definitely. And I think they've had, yeah, it wasn't a World Cup for them. They had very high expectations. They, it went very poorly. Um, they've had lots of coach changes. And there's been a, quite a lot in the press about some of the unhappiness from their players. So I think I think that was a massive result for them, though, to be honest. They're, they're a good side at Donnybrook. Um, I think Wales would have expected to go there and get some sort of result. So it may, may be that the things start to come right in the camp uh, with, with such a, a good win against Wales, who are definitely improving as a side. Just before you go, Gary... Um, your thoughts on the uh, Tyrrell's Premier 15s this year? Yeah, I think it's making a huge difference. I think that the, the off-field stuff, there's still a way to go without that. There still needs to be a lot more investment all round from, from wherever that comes from. But it's brought different standards. The, the games are better, the off-field stuff. Um, Harlequins with, with my club have, have been incredible with support to the, to the girls, as as other clubs as well in the Premiership. And I think that it's the way the game should go. And I think that it's going to just improve over the next two or three years now. Gary, thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Rob. Take yeah. care. Well, to wrap the podcast up, uh, disappointment for England, but that's what happens if you turn up, uh, <laughs> as we know, if you turn up at Murrayfield and you're not quite right. Well, you know, maybe in 18 months' time we'll be looking back and going, that was the making the making of this team. Um, you know, they, they've been on a, an unbelievable run. Um I think one of the, the the big talking points that we will probably come back to over the next 12 months, 18 months is where's the team gone in the back row? Where's the team gone in the midfield? Mm. Who's the captain? Um, can you keep, you keep taking your captain off after 55 minutes? Um, do you keep chopping and changing your halfbacks in the modern game? You know, there are still some questions there that I, that Eddie clearly knows he's got to answer um, and, and they will go a long way to determining where this England team goes over the next 12-18 months Well, let's finish with congratulations Scotland on a tremendous performance technically and mentally the same to Ireland You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and NatWest Thank you to my co-host Rob Andrew and my very happy producer who's a Scottish fan, Abby Patterson Rob and I will be back next week In the meantime, Make sure you subscribe to the podcast as it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. But for now, goodbye.